Down Learning Today's Alumni Voices podcast. I'm your host, Josh Van Campen, and today we're going live into Singapore with Senior Associate Network Development Lead at Second Views, Stephanie Arrowsmith. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Josh. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we're having a bit of a chat before this, and you asked the question, how much travel uh, do you do in your role? And you said this is the longest you've actually spent in Singapore due to the pandemic because uh, you were traveling at least twice a month. Yes, so it's been um, a really good exercise in, in actually staying in one country <laughs> for a continuous <laughs> amount of time um, and a new experience for me, but, but a good one. Yeah, usually I'd be traveling every, every two weeks or so and, and just within the region, Southeast Asia mm. mainly um, or Asia, but um, it's been a good, good experience trying something different. <laughs> now, we're going to be talking about the, the social impact of COVID, especially mm. in the Singapore and Jakarta regions that you primarily work in. Mm. Uh, but, you know, we, we're facing a global health crisis, unlike any in history, uh, one that's killing people, spreading human suffering and upending lives. Uh, but it's more than a health crisis. It is a human and economic social crisis. So which groups have been left in a vulnerable position, primarily there in Singapore? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, um, it's been a topic of discussion quite recently. Um, Having studied public health, we we looked at frameworks of interactions between our biology, our culture and society and our physical environment, Mm. as well as factors around the economy and the policy that that's what determines our overall health. So whether you see this difference between countries, like we've seen between, for example, US, Italy, or Korea, vast differences in how this is manifesting. We're also seeing it within countries because different systems also exist in uh, within countries mm-hmm. around the, these human and ec- economic elements that you're pointing to. Um, and we've just in Singapore recently had um, quite a surge of cases and not necessarily um, because the whole population is having a surge, but because specific populations like the migrant communities um, who are essential workers in Singapore's um, economic system um, have been deeply, deeply affected. Um, the conditions of their work and the conditions of uh, their, their living is quite different to the rest of the, the majority of Singapore's population. And so there's been mass testing on that front. And we've seen that there has been a, a huge disadvantage in how they've been able to protect themselves and control for, uh, for the virus. So uh, I, think it's, I think the stats are over 80% of the cases are actually stemming from that um, migrant community now in Singapore. Can you give us a bit of insight into what the their living conditions are like? Yeah, yeah. There's actually a fantastic documentary. I, I just watched it last night. Um, it's called "I Dream of Singapore." Um, if, if anyone's looking up some some reading or watching after this, um, but. Their, their conditions are, um, they live in huge, huge dormitories where you would have um, about minimum, at minimum, six to eight to 20 per dorm in sleeping quarters. And then you have shared, all shared facilities from uh, kitchens, cooking, eating, um, as well as uh, all your washrooms are all shared as well. Mm-hmm. And you have hundreds in a single dormitory. And so it's kind of this all enclosed um, living facility um that that they use and share and there are quite a number of these they're spread out more around the heartlands of singapore so outside of the city so they commute in and out um, depending on the work that they're doing and they travel together as well in large trucks and vehicles um, around singapore so they're really these kind of micro ecosystems actually in populations of people living in and working together and so you can can imagine with that density um, Mm. and that physical contact that they're you know it's really ripe conditions for for um, this type of virus to to pass through. 
Is it feasible for them to be self-isolating? It's a tricky one. I think the the Singapore um, government has taken the position of they're they're fantastic in in having done mass testing and really trying to get on top of this um, this problem. And um, they have been isolating and using different sort of locations outside of Singapore to triage as best they can. Mm-hmm. A lot of the migrant um, population are quite young, so that's a really that's a good advantage. Most of the symptoms and cases are really mild. So the containment efforts and the triaging has been um, has been pretty effective, looking at who are those that need um, really intensive care. Okay, we'll take them out into individual quarantined areas. Um, and where they do have to stay in dorms, they're really ramping up um, as much separation as possible and cleaning of, of the facilities multiple times a day. Yeah, I wow. think one, one massive um, reflection is, is, I guess, this feels like a bit of an oversight. I mean, Singapore has been the, uh, has been really leading in the, in the efforts around tracing and containment um, and yet, this this kind of uh, these cases were bubbling and 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 rising, particularly in this community. Um, but one thing that I think can be said is they're they're hundred percent going to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. I think now that the um, now that it's been recognized, uh, the government's made a massive commitment to ensure that they will receive all the healthcare they need. And I I, I think that. It puts them, although they're they're at risk here, I think it puts them in better position than the health care that they would receive in their home country. Um, many of them coming from Bangladesh and some very poor communities um, within India as well. So we we hope that, um, and you know, I think they've we've been. Um, I've also been doing some research on um, NGOs looking at supporting uh, migrant communities through this because even the ways they access healthcare, um, if your level of English isn't that strong your ease in navigating the healthcare system and support is going to be impaired. So there's mm-hmm. been a lot of good um, support services also deployed at this time to, to help them. Yeah. Cause you're talking about just before about Singapore being a leader in this, uh, having yeah. experienced SARS in 2003, Singapore's healthcare system had drawn upon it, this experience to enhance its pandemic preparedness response. But yeah. Can you share what life is like in Singapore in the current moment? Mm, yeah, it's been, um, I actually, I was back in Australia spending Christmas with family um, in December, and then I stayed on until New Year's. I came back about uh, mid, mid-Feb, and we were getting prepared for uh, Lunar New Year celebrations. So there was a lot of excitement in the air, but we were also getting our first wave of coronavirus cases. So if you can imagine, Singapore has been living in this sort of um, you know, very close intimacy with this pandemic since um, since February. And we've been going through different phases or stages of it. Um, we really had, uh, since then, we've, we've always had really transparent communication with the government. We actually have a WhatsApp group where we get um, updates on cases at least twice a day, number of cases, how many have been discharged. Um, tracing has been fantastic. I think they've They've already developed a lot of the technologies that help with tracing because of their experience with uh, previous uh, health cases like this and pandemics. Um, but right now, given the surge, they have had to um, uh, clamp down a little bit more. They're not necessarily calling a lockdown. It's been called a circuit breaker. Um, and the idea is by, by you know, introducing these regulations, um, you know, quite strongly, at least we ramped up quite heavily from, we, we have actually haven't been doing um, any, we didn't have any regulations around needing to work from home that only really got introduced about three weeks ago. Um, so we went from, you know, having it under, under control to, okay, we're going to introduce a circuit breaker and this is going to require everyone to stay at home, work from home where you can, um, and only essential services open. And at this stage also, um, we cannot go outside without wearing masks. 
Um, mm -hmm. So really, they've done a massive um, effort in like in ramping up all of these protocols, but with an effort to say that if we're able to break the circuit here, then we can go back to normal life much faster. And let's talk about the self-isolation side of things now, because it's a risk making problems associated with loneliness worse. Uh, how can we keep our social connections if we didn't have any prior to COVID-19? Yeah, I think this is, this is a, it's a great question. I think this is the biggest risk and also possibly the biggest opportunity that we can, we can take as individuals and as communities during this time. Um, I think what needs to be acknowledged, and, and I've been thinking about this a lot in my role of building networks and communities, there's, there is absolutely a difference between the type of connection that we can share in physical and virtual spaces. But either way, connection is really important. Um, I think some of us have had the privilege of being part of communities, maybe that were strong and so we're more resilient or perhaps more equipped now that we're in, in self-isolating modes and, and others not so much. Um, I think we also take for granted the, you know, um, digital literacy is required in order for us to connect in really meaningful ways. Um, right now. So I think, um, I think definitely if, if you don't have that community right now, look at how you can you can develop it and reach out to those around you. Um, I think if you don't have um, if you don't have immediate access to those around you, either your workspace, there a lot of um, businesses are setting up new initiatives to get people connected. Um, so if you don't already have a community, seek one out. It's going to be incredibly important. We don't know how long many of us are writing this out for. And if there's one thing that I think can bring us together during this time is it was actually in, in my reflections of, of um, experiencing this so far, it was actually a lot more difficult when um, just the East or, or Southeast Asia and China were being affected by COVID when we were sort of the epicenter of the infection. It felt like the rest of the world didn't quite empathize and understand. Mm. As, as devastating as it is that this has grown to be a, a global challenge and issue, we are all in the same boat together. So there's this shared empathy of experience. And I think that does make it easier to reach out to people around you um, and for these requests for support, requests for connection to be, to be well received. And I know we were talking about this earlier is I think what can be tricky is like our work connections and our social connections are all 100% online now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, depending what country you're in, you're in, some of us are not able to go out and socialize and, and some of us are living at home alone. Maybe some of us are living at home with families, but we're all coming from very different um, experiences of this. And, um, and so our access to social connection is going to look very, very different. Yeah. Before you talked about the digital literacy, some people may not necessarily have the expertise there, but what about those that don't have access to the simplest things like the internet? That's, yeah, and that's huge, right? I think we're also, we're seeing the divide and the, the cracks of, of this inequality coming up even in the US. Um, a lot of schools and a lot of institutions that have had to transition all of their learning to online learning have done so with the assumption that everyone has stable internet connection at home and the ability to access. Um, some of the programs that we've been running at Second Muse in Indonesia, um, we, we run um, basically entrepreneur support programming and much of this has been face-to-face. So to take it online, we've also had to encounter a lot of challenges around access to internet and affordability of that. Um, perhaps for some of us, you know, like it is, it's something that 
we have been able to factor in the cost of, um, but in a lot of other countries, not, not necessarily at a household level. It's not something that everyone would immediately have, and they're needing to build up the infrastructure and build those investments in um, really fast. So I think even at that basic level, um, even though this is a global pandemic, the the ways um, in which we can respond and we are prepared to respond looks really different depending where you are. Yeah, can you, let's, let's talk about Secumuse because it's a network-centered innovation agency designed to tackle complex problems. You exist to build communities and networks that through their relationships and businesses create a more sustainable, inclusive and meaningful society. So how did this, how did Second Muse begin? What exactly is it that you do on a day-to-day basis and how much of an impact has COVID-19 had on you right now? Yeah, great, great question. So Second Muse as a company has been around for about 10 years. It's a B corporation, a benefit corporation, um, and it started in the U.S. Um, the Singapore office uh, was established in July, and that's when I, I kind of helped set up the, the Singapore office here. Um, and I've been working with Second Muse for about for about two years. I actually started with a project with um, with DFAT um, and Second Muse about two years ago. Mm-hmm. So um, our day to day work essentially looks like building more resilient um, ecosystems that can help. Uh, solve social environmental challenges. And those social environmental challenges look different depending on um, what context we're in. So that ecosystem of change that we are trying to create in Indonesia, for example, was focused on sustainable seafood. Um, In Australia, we have looked at issues around um, regeneration and the Great Barrier Reef. Um, What kind of innovations, technologies, and support mechanisms are required in order to preserve that part of the world? In Asia here, we're focused on um, actually ocean plastic pollution. So how do we build an ecosystem, a stronger ecosystem that can generate more solutions in the space of um, ocean plastic pollution? So we're working across Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, Philippines, and India to source and support some of the best innovations and entrepreneurs who have solutions to local waste management issues. Um, We're also working with investors. We're working with corporations and governments to create these enabling environments so those innovations can succeed, can succeed in growing and actually being adopted as solutions. So it's kind of a a full spectrum approach. Um, And we do this because um, inherently it requires not when we when we think about these complex problems like ocean plastics pollution, it won't be one one silver bullet that solves everything. It's actually going to be the coordination of a network of committed individuals and organizations and a, the lining up of the right incentives for that system to change. Um, so I guess that's that, and that's the role I play is understanding who the key actors and stakeholders are in the ecosystem, building meaningful relationships between them of cooperation, of collaboration, of trust in order to support innovations to, to grow and thrive and be adopted in, in these economies. And um, our, our hypothesis is that that type of, of growth of, of innovation, which is quite different to say a Silicon Valley model where you're backing one single entrepreneur mm-hmm. to drive up profit and drive up um, their, sing- their singular success. The idea of what we do is to do so in a way that builds up the entire community along with it. So the success of, of solving an issue relies actually on the collaboration, the efforts of a, a collective whole. Um, and it's something we call uh, network-centered innovation. So where do you find these entrepreneurs? Are you seeking them out? Are they seeking you out? Mm, that's a great question. We do a bit of both. 
a bit of both. Um, I spent a, a lot of my first year, second year, actually doing field work in, in South and Southeast Asia. A lot of it was just really building ground level trust, meeting people where they are, understanding what their challenges are, and then really ensuring that the programs that you design um, and the types of networks you design actually meet their needs. I think sometimes we become really disconnected from trying to support our beneficiary and designing what, think, what we think needs to happen and it doesn't quite match the reality on the ground, particularly when your work involves a lot of different cultural contexts. Um, it's something I've been really interested in is this intercultural aspect of, of what I do. I, I grew up in a multicultural household. My mom's from Indonesia originally, that's where I was born. And then I moved to Australia and my dad's U from the UK, but um, Australian, um, very much Australian. And so growing up in this intercultural um, environment and negotiating um, and understanding what differences are between different cultures, I've been able to think about how that comes into this work. Um, it's it's such a it's really important that when we look at these systems change efforts, we're also we're really inclusive of what change needs to look like at a very local grassroots community level, and then mediate that with what's possible at a uh, systemic or policy level, which might be a, a bit of a distance from grassroots. And so we're constantly kind of mediating those spaces. Now, you're also the co-founder and advisor of Impact Hub Jakarta, an innovation community that exists to support organizations and entrepreneurs with positive social and environmental impact. So how is this community making an impact during this pandemic and how similar is it to Second Muse as well? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's, um, I, I started Impact Hub Jakarta with a group of co-founders. Um, actually, a few years after I graduated from UWA, I had this real yearning to go back to understand what um, what it looks like to support local entrepreneurship. Um, my work at, at when I got out of UWA was really centered on um, global policy and advocacy at this at this much higher level of social change. Really fascinating, but there was this yearning to understand. Okay, well, this is this is interesting and important, but what also needs to happen at a grassroots level. So the Impact Hub is basically um, a co-working space innovation hub, brings together social entrepreneurs to help support them to grow their innovations locally, mm -hmm. but connects them also to a global ecosystem. So there's actually a hundred plus Impact Hubs around the world. Impact Hub Jakarta is the first in Indonesia. Um, and if you're noticing a pattern here of networks, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, really interested in, in, yeah, like how do we operate as individuals who are part of these communities and communities that are part of coordinated networks. And I see that as a really important theory of change for, for I, I guess, what I do and the purpose that I serve, but also I think collectively how our world can move through some of these social environmental issues. So it's, it is really similar to Second Muse, but perhaps looking more through the lens of what can local social entrepreneurs do in their um, in their city level and country level community, given its focus on, um, on uh, centered around that place-based approach, Impact Hub Jakarta, um, versus Second Muse looking actually a couple steps up into this, um, into the regional system and, and global system. And actually Impact Hub Jakarta is a partner with uh, Second Muse on a number of, of initiatives and is a member of some of their programming. So now we're actually starting to see a relationship between networks as well, which is really interesting. Can you share maybe if there's a, is there a set definition of a social entrepreneur? Because I've been hearing that term probably more than ever the last five years. Entrepreneurs are generally known as, you know, kind of like tech startups. Everyone thinks about the, you know, mm. Googles and Facebooks. So when did like social entrepreneurship 
kind of become a thing and is is it are we is is there a risk of it becoming uh, just something that people want to be involved in but maybe not necessarily be their passion yeah yeah i think you're right the the definition of social entrepreneurship has always been a bit blurry um ashoka the foundation um based out of the us was the first organization i think to really try to define and coin the term really early on um but in in the work that or in, in the networks that I move in, we look at social entrepreneurship as using business model frameworks to create sustainable um, impact and change. And so using, it might be say, which is different to a foundation or a nonprofit structure where you are uh, raising funds to create impact in a certain way a lot of social entrepreneurs look at how they can build an impact into the model of their business so that the incentives are really tied together closely. As a customer to a product or service, you are directly supporting an outcome that is impact driven. Um, and I think the the degree to which we're able to measure this, um, it's, it's a bit tricky. There's a lot of different impact measurement frameworks out there, but no one's actually sort of selected one for the social entrepreneur community. So. I think every organization ends up uh, defining social entrepreneurship their own way. Um, but what we're doing is, uh, I think when we when we think of social entrepreneurship, the heart of it is, are you looking at solving a solution in a way that's really creative, that is sustainable in terms of its um, in terms of its business model and has the potential to scale? So a lot of them we're looking at potential for growth as well um, in that and. Um, Josh, you had asked earlier what Impact Hub Jakarta was doing in, in terms of uh, response to the pandemic. Um, we're, we're currently sort of mapping out the needs of the local community. I've been in touch with them, um, with the team there on a regular basis now. Because the situation in Indonesia itself, it hasn't been really clear. We've also been thinking about our team. How does this impact our team? Um, but we've been collaborating and speaking with Impact Hub Phnom Penh and Impact Hub Berlin, who have run this program called Hack the Crisis. So this is where uh, an online virtual hackathon takes place to solve local challenges around uh, around COVID-19. So in Berlin, it actually became, um, Impact of Berlin was part of a, a group that ran Hack the Crisis with the, with the government actually, um, the German government and a couple other key stakeholders. I think there, was, there were like 100,000 participants around. Yeah, wow. Um, around Germany, which is incredible. Um, but they, they set out, um, they basically community sourced local challenge statements. So what are the needs um, around COVID right now? What are we seeing is lacking? What do we need solutions around that we can mm -hmm. rapidly create, prototype and deploy? Um, and that's, and they did that in less, I think they did that in 48 hours. So the ideation of, of ideas emerged in teams virtually in 48 hours. They generated a whole set of um, potential solutions. And then now they're actually in the prototyping and implementation phase of some of those solutions together with government. So we're looking to replicate a, a similar response effort in Indonesia. Are, are you keeping tabs on a lot of the regions across the globe that are making positive change and taking advantage of this COVID-19 crisis. And then on the other side, looking at the likes of the United States, which seem to be having their own internal issues with, I guess, people not necessarily in, you know, adapting to the self-isolation, I guess you could say. Mm, yeah, I think 
you know, just even within our organizational structures, within the Impact Hub global community, we have this dashboard where we're looking at all of our cities and how our cities are being impacted. We're sharing best practice in terms of responses. We're, we're sharing different initiatives that our members or people, different partners we work with are running mm -hmm. so that we can more quickly share this information um, and and implement solutions faster. Um, but but you've nailed, yeah, you've nailed it on the head there that the there's such stark differences as well. We have a second news team in New York that's really at the epicenter of the crisis in, in the US. And we've had to pause some of our programming to be able to do just immediate short-term relief because our work is, is in systems change um, and this longer term solution. Uh, we, we know that that's absolutely critical but we also know that right now we need to stop the bleeding, right? And so we've had to pause some of our activities to go, okay, what's important right now in this community so that we can continue to work on the long-term uh, changes as well. Now let's talk about some of the companies that have been forced to embrace social impact or fallen behind with budgets being cut and job losses at an all-time mm -hmm. high. We'll see companies prioritize profits in the short term minimizing their social impact in their community. Uh, which companies have been speaking up to continue their support of their community? Yeah, I think actually the, the ones that are doing this the best are the, are actually maybe, maybe not exclusively social entrepreneurs, but definitely impact-driven businesses. Those that have really close connections to their, uh, the communities that they serve and the customers that they serve. And I think they're much more resilient to these types of crises than those who have maybe built their um, businesses based on really thin margins and relied on high volumes of maybe more transactional, um, yeah, transactional exchange. So I think we're all feeling it, but it's, it's how, you, how you choose to respond. And, and we've seen some incredible efforts by startups and businesses alike. I've been really inspired seeing how businesses have thought about, look, it's not a time for me as a business to be competitive right now. It's a time for me to actually open up my product or service to more people and make it more oh, wow. accessible. You've got um, companies like, or uh, I don't know if you've he heard of the app Sanvelo. No. Um, you should check it out. It's a mental health and well-being app. And it was, it was designed to ensure that um, access to mental health services were, were more accessible and, um, and easier uh, easier for, for especially young people to feel comfortable accessing. And so it exists as an app and it, there is a, there's a free version with limited functionality and a premium. And they, they said, look, we understand that our product could potentially be really useful right now. We're going to make premium free for the next couple of months so we can ride this out together. So I think that shows real courage and leadership um, and it shows real care. And I think businesses um, that show that care by looking at their product or service and how it can actually be more accessible to people and serve more people rather than being competitive are the ones that are going to thrive and, and ride this out. Cause yeah, that, that retention and that loyalty is really going to matter. Yeah, it is absolutely going to matter at a time like this. Do you think, well, I guess us as consumers are going to remember these organizations and companies that uh, stick, stick, stick by us during this pandemic? Mm, I really hope so. I really hope so. As we were talking about before, I think there's like, there's so much that I think as consumers that we can learn from this. I mean, even just by the changes we've had to make in our lifestyle, I, I hope that it's forced us to examine what we really need. We started going down on this um, treadmill of consumerism, I think all around the world. And 
I think this has given us an interesting pause to think about what are the things that are really critical in our lives and how do we put our energy and effort towards those things that matter? I hope there's some of that that we take from this, but it's going to be really hard to tell. At the same time, we know that we're staring down a barrel of, of recession and that's going to be really challenging for everyone. Um, so to what extent can we make these choices based on our, our values? That's also really going to be tested as well. Yeah, so how can businesses and even entrepreneurs today deliver a positive impact during and after the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, I think um, to what I was saying earlier, so look at opportunities to make your products and services more accessible during this time. Like know that what you're working on is important, but right now what the community might need is something that you, through your product or business, might be able to offer in a way that's either free or more accessible than usual. I think if you are, depending what sector you're in, look at opportunities within your supply chain, your value chain. Can you divert some of your efforts to towards things that are really needed right now? Maybe that's a delivery of essential goods and services, or maybe it's supporting uh, very local community efforts. I think above all, like try to be responsive, but not reactive. Mm -hmm. and, and that means listening. I think that means listening really um, really deeply to the community and what they need and, and being transparent. I think this is, applies both to how you communicate to your, your customers with care and consideration and also how you communicate to your teams. I know a lot of the businesses that uh, we are supporting at Impact Hub and also at Second Muse are in really precarious um, situations around their financial viability. They're making really difficult decisions right now about who they may need to keep on their teams and um, how they might have to cut down services and that kind of thing. So making these hard decisions, just make sure you're thinking about um, how you communicate and you do that with consideration and care. Um, and I think that's that's a massive reflection on, um, on the leadership. I think everyone is getting, every company, how, whatever size and whatever shape, this is a big test of leadership and, and collaboration for, for teams all around the world. How's your leadership been tested during this time? Oh, it's been, um, it's been pretty challenging, to be honest, Josh. Um, I think on one hand, I've been supporting the team in Jakarta. I'm, as, as I mentioned, as a, as a co-founder and advisor, I'm not uh, involved day-to-day -day operationally. But when things like this happen, this becomes uh, all of our business. It becomes, we're all in this together. So I've been engaged in a number of ways with our CEO and the team. We've held a lot of um, town hall discussions to facilitate open space and transparency. Mm -hmm. We've been holding not just business as usual, let's have a stand-up meeting every week, but we're just having space we were calling sort of well-being space where we get together to just talk about how we as humans are being affected by this because that helps us show up as better coworkers as well. Um, but it's, it's stretch. It's been very stretchy as a leader, um, but a really good learning experience as well. Um, I think these are the moments where you can, you have the opportunity to grow the most. And I feel really lucky that I, I do have fantastic emotional supports around me. Um, and I've been really transparent with the team as well. I don't think anyone is an expert in how to navigate a global pandemic. <laughs> and the more that we can acknowledge that and lean on others for support, the better. Um, and even with, with my work at Second Muse, uh, you know, having to communicate to my team that um, these things are happening for me in my life and, and I need support. Um, we've been kind of huddling together to make decisions together. So it hasn't felt like as a leader, you're alone yeah. in making a particular decision. And we've had to pivot um, a lot of our products and services. And on one hand, it was a little bit frustrating. On the other hand, uh, you know, on the other side of it, I look at 
it as a creative challenge. Like constraints can breed really interesting creativity. And now we've, we've had new ideas and new ways of approaching things that we probably didn't consider before. Was there also some ideas that have been fast tracked as well? Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. We were um, experimenting with, uh, with, going virtual with some of our programming just out of pure increasing accessibility because we're, we're trying to cover both cities and more remote areas. Um, and while it's been sort of an experiment that we've wanted to try on the back burner, it's definitely put that experiment forefront, um, brought it to the forefront and we're actively testing now. So that's been also really cool. Now, Stephanie, that's all the time we've got, but if people want to find out more about Second Muse and the Impact Hub, where should they go? Yeah, if you want to know more about Second Muse, check out the website, uh, secondmuse.com and Impact Hub as well, um, impacthub.net. Um, if you want to collaborate or think about ways that we can leverage networks like these to facilitate change, I would love, love to, to have a virtual coffee, um, a chat anytime, and you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. And I think, um, yeah, Josh, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. It's been really just a nice space to reflect on. Uh, I guess all of the experiences so far um, going through COVID and also nice, ex nice space to reflect on my experiences at UWA and, and what I've been up to since then. <laughs>